0: Tonight, we're going to get the good news. We've heard some really beautiful talks on working with the difficult hindrances, attachment, and uh, craving, and anger, and all the difficulties that come up, and we had compassion practice and opened up to the suffering as a sublime state. And last night, Sharda gave a lovely talk on safety, finding refuge. Uh, and uh, all of those are, are so essential to allow us to keep on opening to our experience no matter what. But uh, tonight, I wanted to talk about... <clears throat> The uplifting states that we are developing here—mudita, other uplifting states, gratitude, the quality of, of openness that comes with metta—and sometimes, as as you know, Sally mentioned at the beginning, I've been exploring. Joy a lot in the last few years. And uh, the reason that, one of the main reasons that I was drawn to explore it is uh, as a a very serious and dedicated practitioner, um, sometimes I was so focused on suffering that I forgot about joy and lost my my connection to it for a little while. And uh, so I've been finding that it's important to remind myself and others that this is really about developing happiness. You know, that we, we hear the first noble truth, there is suffering, then there is a cause of suffering, then there is the end of suffering, And then there's a path leading to the end of suffering. And sometimes happiness just kind of doesn't get as much airplay in there. But uh, the Buddha was called the happy one. And in fact, the end of suffering, another way of saying the end of suffering is the highest happiness. And if you think about it, he said, go for it. He said, go for the highest happiness. If you go aim for the highest happiness, excuse me, All the other happiness has come along the way. So he had a very clear intention to bring about the the greatest states of well-being that are possible in human capacity. The Dalai Lama starts out his his book, The Art of Happiness, the purpose of life is to be happy. It's a great way to start a book. Great opening line. The purpose of life is to be happy. What could that mean? Does that mean just kind of feeling good, putting a smile on your face and saying, it's cool? There's something much deeper than that. He said, if you can find out where real happiness lies, you are fulfilling your destiny. And not only that, you are offering the greatest gift to everybody around you. And perhaps you're familiar with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who, after going through all the, the dukkha, the suffering in uh, Vietnam, and his, his saw so much suffering, and he, he said how important it is to really come to terms with suffering, but then his, his classic line is, suffering is not enough. It's good to know about suffering, but we have to also see um, why we're doing this, not just to come to terms with suffering. And I, I love one of his uh, instructions. He says, sometimes, instead of getting so focused on suffering, we become very, uh, very good practitioners at noticing suffering, and we can see what's, what's wrong. He says, uh, try this practice. Look out for what's not wrong. Last week I had a toothache. Oh, I have no toothache today. How wonderful. So as we're opening up to all these different kinds of happinesses, it's not that we're living in denial. We are creating a bigger context with which to process all the the truisms of that first noble truth, yeah, there's suffering in life, but as we can open up our hearts and not be so swept up by it because we see all the the goodness around us, then um, we're not so overwhelmed. Uh, I remember when I first started doing practice, this is in uh, 1974, the first summer that I, I met Joseph Goldstein at Naropa Institute that, that first summer that it opened. And um, I was and have a natural bent of being um, uh, passionate and uh, loving life, loving to celebrate. And uh, I was wondering, gosh, you know, this, this seems, um, I wonder what I'm getting into here. And on one one particular day that's indelible in my my memory, i uh, I came to the uh, the class essential Buddhism it was, uh, and i I had already fallen in love with the Dharma after like the first ten minutes of, of hearing Joseph. I said, "This is it. I' found what i 'm looking for I'm going for it." He was saying that it's actually possible to not be driven by Your neurotic thoughts, and I never thought that—I never entertained that possibility before. But and I believed him, so I was going for it because I was in a lot of suffering. Uh, But this one particular day, I I came in and I was wearing my um, my New York Knicks T-shirt, and in those days, I was a season ticket holder for the New York Knicks, who in these were their glory years. If you're old enough to remember Walt Frazier and uh, Dave DeBusher and Willis Reed and those guys, Earl the Pearl was my favorite for those basketball fans out there. (laughs) But there I was wearing my Knicks shirt and uh, I was meditating and very serene (laughs) and the thought occurred to me, oh my goodness, I don't know if this is going to work and I I went up to Joseph. It was the first time I ever I got the, I mustered up the courage to speak to him after kind of like saying, Wow, Joseph, Joseph Goldstein. It was like about the fourth or fifth class. And I said, uh, Excuse me, I want to speak to you. Um, I'm a season ticket holder to the New York Knicks. <laughs> <and> I, <laughs> uh, am I going to go to Madison Square Garden and just watch the game and go, Nice shot, Frazier. So, <laughs> Good move, Havlicek. Because <laughs> I wasn't ready to sign on for that. <laughs> and uh, he assured me, he said, just the right thing. He said, don't worry. You'll still feel your passion. You'll just probably get over the loss a little bit sooner. <laughs> okay, I'm going for it. I can commit now. Because... Um, it's very, uh, I find, very important to be able to see the goodness in life. Otherwise, we're just looking out for what can go wrong. Uh, I was a, a month or so ago, I was giving a talk in my Thursday group in Berkeley and uh, remembered something I hadn't remembered in years and years that depicts, I think, our problem. When I was a kid... Uh, I was about six or seven years old or so, and my father was teaching me to ride a bicycle you know, f- with the training wheel. We were going to take the training wheels off, you know, that magical day. Okay, wow, cool. And uh, we were, it was a Sunday on my, uh, in my neighborhood uh, in Elmhurst, Queens, for those people in New York, on Hampton Street and there was nobody in sight at least for a while <laughs> and you know you're going down the street and then and the, and the wheels are off and my, my dad had the uh, was holding on to the back and kind of running keeping up with me and then at some point he said okay here you go and I kept on bicycling. I was keeping, maintaining my balance and all, and then I see in the distance, there's a bunch of people uh, and a baby carriage. (laughs) And the thought, as soon as I saw it, the thought came to me, don't go into the baby carriage. (laughs) Don't go into the baby carriage. (laughs) Stay away from the baby carriage and it was like radar just kind of like honing in it was the only place i could it was the only place in my universe and there i went into the baby carriage traumatized for like the next 3 years you know i didn't get on a bike you know it took me it took me quite a while and that's in a nutshell our problem isn't it don't go into the baby carriage you know don't go down that road. Oh, I hope that doesn't happen. Please don't let it happen. I'll do anything for it not to happen. How did that happen? Yeah. So uh, there's, there's a problem that comes when we're, we have too much focus on what can go wrong in our attempt to protect ourselves and keep things okay. And uh, you might think, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, you're such an optimist. And, you know, by the way, I was, I won't go into that story, but I was a real pessimist, a huge pessimist. I just thought everything was going to go wrong until I had a, a, a transformative experience in my early 20s and saw that I was creating that and I could create it another way. And, uh, and I changed but I, I realize, I know what that other place is like and I've been wanting to and enjoying and appreciating and so grateful uh, for the possibility of looking for the good that can happen for quite some time. Um, and in case you think that's a kind of you know cockeyed optimism, I wanted to share with you a few things. Um, this is from Martin Seligman, who wrote uh, Authentic Happiness, who's the, which was the book, and he is the father of positive psychology. He says, pessimists are up to eight times more likely to become depressed than optimists when bad events happen. They do worse in school, sports, and most jobs than their talents augur, They have worse physical health, shorter lives, and rockier interpersonal relations. Teaching 10-year-old children the skills of optimistic thinking and action cuts their rate of depression in half when they go through puberty. And here's uh, another happiness or positive psychologist, Sonia Lyubomirsky. Mindfulness teaches us to incline our mind towards joy by helping us wisely choose our thoughts and actions The more we do this, the more readily it happens. An unhappy person, in some of her research, spends more than twice as much time thinking about unpleasant events in their lives while happy people tend to seek and rely upon information that brightens their outlook. Now, you might say, yeah, but what about the world? I mean, really, as somebody very... um, understandably came into uh, an interview saying, you know, there's just so much dukkha in the world and it just weighs, weighs her down. And I want to share with you Howard Zinn, a great um, awake historian, from his essay, uh, The Optimism of Uncertainty. He says, an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. They couldn't fit all the stories, all the good stories that happen each day in the newspaper. It wouldn't make news anyway. Oh, so big deal. It doesn't stimulate the senses. It might touch the heart. We can read occasional feature stories and say, oh, yeah, the goodness in life. There are some good things that happen. But it's not as sensational. You don't get that adrenaline rush that you do when we're shocked into picking up the paper. I was talking. We were having a conversation this morning uh, with Ming-Tung, um, Charlie, and Kamala and I. And I was asking him just his theories about positive energy. He seemed like a pretty positive guy, would you say? <laughs> you know? So I, I, you know, I wanted to know, you know, on, on an energetic level, what what he thought was going on. And and what he said made ex- perfect sense and aligned with what how I see things. Thanks. Thank goodness. <laughs> um, <laughs> that positive en- energy attracts itself. That when you're, you have a positive energy and there's a neutral energy field out there that that vibration starts to resonate and, um, and turn that neutral into a positive vibration and that if there's a positive and a negative vibration, whichever one is more powerful, that energy will override the other. You know when you're around, I don't know if you've ever been around the Dalai Lama, but being around somebody like that, he's got such a great energy field, you know, Mingtong is, is like that as well, such a good energy field that, you know, you might go into a, a lecture feeling kind of bummed out, but by the end, you're kind of like, oh, life is so good, you know because he kind of overrode whatever wavelength you were on. And uh, Ming Tang also um, went further and talked about healing. And he said, you know, from the, the brain mind, from the, from the brain field, that can affect the positive energy, affects the heart, and affects on the cellular level, all of that positive energy starts to get aligned, and that's what healing is about. You know? And he has these amazing healing uh, experiences or students do when they, they, they practice the qigong because that positive energy is going down to a cellular level and starting to rearrange, coming into harmony. So it's a good thing to open up to all the goodness around us. And in fact, the Buddha recommended this very highly. If you're not familiar with the the teaching on the wise efforts, you know one of the links in the Eightfold Path is called wise effort. And the formal um, definition of wise effort has four components. There is guarding against unwholesome states that haven't yet arisen. That is. Don't put yourself in temptation's way. There's overcoming unwholesome states that have arisen, and those, all the, the practices like mindfulness and compassion and, and metta and things that we're, we're doing here can be used to interrupt those wholesome states and transform them. And then there's two aspects of wise effort that have to do with cultivating what's wholesome, there's developing wholesome states that haven't yet arisen. And then there is maintaining and increasing wholesome states that have arisen. This is a good thing. Then this is what we're doing here in the meta practice. We are cultivating wholesome states perhaps that haven't yet arisen. You know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, yeah, right, good <laughs> luck, you know may i be happy and after a little while or some time you start to get glimpses oh yeah there's i'm feeling a little bit lighter all of those seeds of intention start to have their their fruition as you plant them again and again and you develop a wholesome state of kindness of openness of compassion and then there is when they have arisen to maintain and increase them he says that's a good thing you might think well Gosh, that sounds a lot like attachment. He's not saying get attached to them. He's saying keep on developing them because in that wholesome state of well-being, you can see more clearly. You're not constricted by confusion and fear and ignorance. Their clarity emerges and your natural state of well-being and love and caring shine through. In one particular discourse, which was very profound for me, actually it was one of the main motivations for, for that course that I teach, he, he, has the, he, he talks about the gladness that's connected with the wholesome. He says, while you're in the middle of a wholesome state, there is a feeling of gladness that comes, isn't there? And in this one discourse, he, says, he gives an example of um, being in the middle of a generous act. He says, while you're in the middle of a generous act, it's a good thing to think to yourself, to reflect, I'm being generous right now. Isn't that interesting? Now you might say, wow, that could be a bit of an ego trip. right? Like, hey, check it out. You see? <laughs> I'm being generous, everybody see? I'm pretty generous. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's not saying take ownership of it, he's saying, notice how good it feels when generosity moves through us. And he says, that gladness that's connected with what is wholesome, inspires us, it gives us, uh, delights the heart, it gladdens the heart, it gives us, um, it delights in the meaning of the truth And then he has a line, that gladness connected with the wholesome I call an equipment of mind to overcome ill will and hostility. So he says, pay attention to the gladness. Don't miss it. That is the best way to maintain and increase those wholesome states. And... When we let it register, you know, like in the, in the metta practice, when you are saying the, the phrases and you're you having an image and every now and then you get in touch with the feeling, when the feeling arises, put all your attention on the feeling. You can have the phrases keeping on going, but if you are so completely drawn into the feeling, it's okay, it's okay to, to let them go for a little while if they seem to be too busy or getting in the way, you can completely rest in that feeling of kindness, of well-being, of love. And in that, you are maintaining and increasing that wholesome state and getting more familiar with it. It becomes more accessible because you, you know the territory. Oh yeah, it really is possible for me to feel this loving, this good. Don't miss it. So, with the uh, Brahma vihara of Mudita, this is um, particularly focusing on happiness. You know, as I wasn't here when Anushka led the, uh, the guided practice today, but um, you might have gotten a hit of what it's like to turn that heart of kindness towards happiness directly towards happiness i uh, when you th- when you think about it i'm sure she talked about it happiness in the happiness of others uh, i think of it as a free joy ride you know? <laughs> you don't have to wait for you to feel good you're tuning into the joy around you in the old days in the 60s we used to call it a contact high you know? <laughs> Now, this could be completely without any substances at all. You can tune into that contact high. Oh, wow. And it's sometimes said that uh, mudita is one of the hardest, for some people, the hardest of all the Brahma Viharas. You know, our heart is moved when we feel compassion, when we see suffering and move to feel compassion. Or that affinity that we can feel for others and that close connection in metta. And sometimes if you've been practicing for a while, do, doing some mindfulness practice, equanimity, you know what it's like to just be here with things as they are. But happiness at the happiness of others, for some, that seems like a stretch. And I came across this line by the, the French philosopher uh, Montaigne, who said, there's, there's something not altogether too displeasing, in the misfortune of our friends, <laughs> it's kind of a you know depressing thought. But you know that feeling when when somebody has something bad happen to them. Oh, I'm so sorry. <sighs> well, <laughs> what is that about? And whether it's friends or somebody else, we our our culture seems to thrive on celebrities or heroes falling off their pedestal. You know, it's one of the most compelling stories there are. Oh, yeah, he was so high and mighty. The, 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 hard, the, the, uh, the, the, the higher they go, the harder they fall. You know? Butita is very different from that. Why is it that we have some kind of relief sometimes at the misfortune of others. And the way I think of it, one theory is that sometimes the mind feels like there's this kind of competition for happiness, like there's a limited amount of happiness out there, and if they've got it, it might be less for me. Or how come they get it and I can't? somehow it's eluding me there is no quota on happiness that's not how it works we are affected by each other it's like you know if there were a quota on different mind states then if you were in a room and somebody came in filled with anger you might think oh good They've got the anger, and there's less for me. But that's not how it works, is it? It rubs off on us. We get affected by that energy field, like I was saying a few moments ago. And in the same way that the anger rubs off on us, happiness can rub off on us if we allow it, if we tune into it and see the possibility. We are... Affecting each other all the time. And uh, perhaps you're familiar, or maybe you're not familiar, with this phenomenon in in recent years that um, neuroscientists are discovering, uh, call have discovered called mirror, mirror neurons, that we have in our brain areas that light up when we see somebody else going through something. This is from uh, Field Notes on the Compassionate Life by Mark and Barish. My favorite book on compassion, by the way. It's a brilliant book. Mirror neurons are a kind of brain mechanism dedicated to empathy's motto, I feel you in me. One study showed that the same cells that light up when a person's finger is jabbed with a pin also light up when someone else's finger is pricked. We wince when we see someone stub her toe and hop painfully on one foot. We know how it feels. Just as our brain is said to have a grammar nugget that enables us to acquire complexities of language, perhaps we have a golden rule nugget containing the neurological ground rules for compassion itself. We all know this. We see somebody do something noble And we have what uh, one neuroscientist or one happiness expert, John Haidt, calls elevation. You know, you see, you read about a noble act and you're ennobled, and it makes you want to do that. That. We see a baby smile. It's it's almost impossible to see an adorable baby smile and stay bummed out, you know? (laughs) Why is that? Because there's something so pure about the baby And it just allows you, oh yes, look at the pureness of that happiness. And that's how parents and children are wired up. You know, a mother, a a baby sees the mother smile and and she smiles. Or the mother sees the baby smile and she smiles, not only smiles, but starts, you know, oxytocin starts shooting through your body and, and the, the breasts are you know filling with milk and it's like, okay, time for food, you know. <laughs> We're neurologically wired up to connect and rub off with each other. That's why we go to movies to get entertained. We we see the 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 drama and we're rooting for the hero you know come on you can make it because we feel them in us you know and when when the guy gets gets the girl you know it's like ah yes or the heroine gets the the reward or the guy oh yes how wonderful we get uplifted because we feel that connection well that's what mudita is about that feeling we all have it of cheering somebody on. And it's, it's such a, a beautiful, pure mind state. When you think about it, there's absolutely nothing in it for you other than the delight of seeing somebody else succeed. It's, it's so selfless, and in a way, that's the, the beauty of it. It's completely selfless, and you're just saying, yeah, go, go. You know that feeling? Think of who you cheer for, you know, whether it's a, uh, a, a, a figure, a famous figure, or someone in your life. And when you say, come on, you can do it, I'm with you. I was, when I was a season ticket holder, by the way, in Madison Square Garden, back to my days, um, I figured I was good for about two or three points in, in in the garden because I would just get going. Come on, we can do it! And my whole section would get going. Come on, we can do it! And somehow then it kind of who it started from. It started in many different places, but our section was you know a, a rousing section, you know. And the home team is favored in every sport. The home team is favored unless there's a dramatic discrepancy between the teams, all things being even, the home team is a huge favorite. Why? Because they've got the whole stadium cheering them on and the the players ride off of that energy. That's how it works. Well, here it is, Mudita practice is cheering on not just one particular favorite person, although it starts with that, but you can open up the field to have, be in everybody's cheering section. It's contagious. This year, by the way, um, I, um, I never watched American Idol before. <laughs> I, I saw about 10 minutes of it once. But this year, I got into like the last three shows because my friend Wendy was completely into Adam Lambert, you know, for, for those who watch American Idol, who was a very cool guy, very beautiful guy. And I found myself watching American Idol and going, come on, Adam, come on, because I was thinking about Wendy in Denver and I was rooting for her to feel good. You know? That's how it works, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And it's infectious, you know, we, you ever be in the middle of a laughing jag, you, know, you don't know what is so funny, but somebody you know, in the next table from you in a restaurant is laughing with their friend and they can't stop, and then you start laughing too, and you have no idea why you're laughing, you know? but it's contagious, that well-being. You can cultivate this in your, in your mind and in your heart. In fact a friend of mine is really into laughing yoga which is great stuff and i have a, a cd of seven different periods of laughing practice and you put it on you just start feeling good and laughing you know <laughs> the root of mudita is um to be pleased to have a sense of gladness and the 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 near and far enemies, the far enemy of Mudita is obviously jealousy, envy. Very, very different, the opposite end of the spectrum. The near enemy of Mudita, just for your information, is uh, exhilaration or exuberance. You might say, gosh, well, is that so bad? I personally, I can get exuberant from time to time, as you probably got a sense. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. (laughs) But when you get spun out, and you lose your center, and you lose yourself, or you get attached to that that feeling, that's when it starts becoming uh, not so healthy. Or the ultimate examples when championships are won, or soccer teams win, and then there are riots. People get so out of control, you know, and usually are drinking a little bit, and then there's all kinds of suffering that come from it. That's the the, the classical example for me of the near enemy of, of Mudita. It is um, the antidote, it's said to be the antidote, for judgment, comparing, you know. Oh, what about, forget it. Judgment, comparing belittling, greed, more for me, no, for you, aversion, and a sense of separation. And the benefits, it cultivates generosity of spirit, it cultivates friendship, it cultivates joy, it cultivates appreciation, and it also develops compassion and connection. And as perhaps some of you um, may have experienced or might experience sometime, it is a great aid for concentration because it brightens the mind and brightens the heart. And it weakens the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. Sometimes it might be a little bit hard to get in touch with. I don't know if you had any trouble today. Often children uh, are a good a good um, object of mudita or somebody you're really are rooting for. On one retreat, I was doing uh, intensive practice with um, mudita, and I just wasn't feeling it. I, I didn't know who to pick. You know, I, like you're finding out you can have a, an ambivalence for almost anybody. You know, And I was not feeling... Just, I couldn't quite get it. And um, so... I thought, well, who do I really cheer on? And, of course, there's another sports uh, story. My favorite athlete of all time is Steve Young, the 49er quarterback. And it was amazing. As soon as I thought of him, and I saw him running around winning the Super Bowl and giving everybody high fives in the stands, and as soon as I saw him in my mind, I just got so happy. I'm, I'm feeling it right now, so <laughs> just bear with me for a moment. Just... Yeah. And it was interesting that when that opened up, it was I just needed to open up that channel, and I think that's often how it works. When you open up that channel for one person, it was so much easier to invite and include others in my life. Which is often how it works with, with metta, you might find as well, you know. If you, just like when you're feeling love, you know, when, you, when, when, you're, when you're feeling love, when you're really, when you're in love, then you're in love with the whole world sometimes. Everybody looks beautiful. Well, in the same way, when you're feeling genuine love or you're feeling genuine m- m- mudita, It's like, oh, how beautiful that is. And then you start to incline the mind and keep your radar out for everyone, or the possibility of seeing it in everyone. We like to feel happy, and we like to share our happiness, and we like to share others' pleasure. We like to see people happy. We really do. And this is, it's so it's not so foreign to us. It just takes a little bit of practice. Um, and I, I'd like to just take you through, I know uh, Anushka did it before, I'd like to take you just through a little bit of a mudita practice as we're, as we're going through this. And then maybe we'll move on to some other, other things. Just close your eyes for a moment. And... Uh, Imagine someone that you're really fond of. Think of somebody you're really fond of. And now see them smiling, smiling or laughing in happiness. What happens to you? Notice how it feels inside. Or somebody, perhaps, that you use this afternoon that you're really rooting for. See them in a winning moment. And take in those good feelings and send them out to that person. May your happiness continue. May your happiness grow. Bless them with that. Wish that for them. If they're happy when they're around you, they'll even be happier. It can rub off on you. Now, you might think of others you'd like to send this energy to. Other other people in your life who have been really a blessing for you and might see them one at a time or more more than one. See them smiling and wish them well. May your happiness continue, may it grow. And if you feel anything, whatever your experience is absolutely fine, But if you do feel any well-wishing, let your awareness take that in. Just rest in it. How sweet it is that you have that capacity. And then for a moment, to do mudita for yourself, put all of those people in your cheering section. If it's just one, that's fine. Or if there are others, just think of all the people in your life who are rooting for you, maybe that know you're on this retreat or who've supported you in being here or who really want to see you happy. And just imagine them all cheering you on. Yeah, we're with you. And imagine feeling that from them. May your happiness continue. May your happiness grow. Let yourself be <coughs> uplifted by that. You've got a lot of people cheering for you, I'm sure. Okay. So as you would maintain and increase that wholesome state, just by paying attention to it, by resting in it when you're, when you're connected with it. Mm-hmm. So Mudita is really about keeping your radar out for the goodness and the happiness around you. It's, it's the opposite of the baby carriage phenomenon. Here. <laughs> You're, you're, there's so much goodness, there's so much joy, and so much sweetness and love. Why not tune into that channel? You know? And as I said, for many years, this has been my, a main practice, particularly through um, being inspired by uh, Neem Karoli Baba from, Uh, Ram Das's guru from Be Here Now and and someone who's very, had a profound effect on me. He uh, he had this one line that said, uh, the best form to worship God is every form. It's a pretty good practice. And what I interpreted that is keep looking for the goodness around. And as you do that, you not only see it, but you actually draw it out from others. I was talking about this again with Mingtang, who completely agreed. And this is something. <laughs> uh, this is something that um, I, I say at almost every retreat because it, it is my main practice. So if you have have not heard it before, I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> if you have, here it is again. Suppose you're just sitting on your own, and somebody comes into a room. And they are looking at all your flaws. Right? And you know it. There they are, judging. Oh, there's this wrong and that wrong. Sorry to interrupt your well-being for a moment. <laughs> How does it feel? You feel flawed, don't you? Or exposed, or seen, or small. Somebody else comes into that room who might know all your flaws, know everything about you, but sees how beautiful you are. Because they see a deeper place and you know it. How do you feel? Beautiful, don't you? It's so mysterious how that happens. It's not just that, oh, yeah, I'm glad they see it. It's like they almost draw it out of us. So if you practice looking for the good, you'll find it. Or at least you've got a better shot at finding it. It might be harder for some to find it in some people than others. But if you keep on looking, we're all Buddhas in there. We all want to be loved. We all want to feel okay and accepted. We all want to be at peace every one of us. That's why the Buddha taught. So if you look for it, you'll find what you look for. If you are looking for how everybody around you is a jerk, you will have ample evidence to corroborate your theory. And you'll find it. If you look for how everyone around is really basically good inside, unless they're tremendously damaged, in which case that's compassion practice for the pain that would cause hurt intentionally. But if you look for the good, you draw it out. So I want to talk about some other uplifting states that uh, in the few minutes I have left uh, that you might keep in mind as you explore this Maintaining and Increasing Wholesome States that the Buddha recommended. Mm. Uh, the, the other day, oh yes, yeah, Sally. It was in Sally's talk. She mentioned about the book, How We Choose to Be Happy, that I, I use as a um, text for my course. <clears throat> and it's Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People, as, as she, she said. They went around interviewing um, these friends, uh, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks, interviewing for three years over 300 people um, who were identifiably certifiably happy. Right? <laughs> and they go into a town and say, "Who's the happiest person in your, your town?" You know, they, rural Alabama. They went everywhere in, uh, in Europe and Canada, and you know they go, you know, all around. And uh, they go into the diner and say, um, "Who's the happiest person?" And, and people would say, uh, "Shirley, she's pretty happy." You know? <laughs> then they go and interview Shirley. Right? I've gotten to know Rick and Greg, so I know this is you know how they how they worked, You know, and uh, they'd ask, "You happy?" Yeah, I'm pretty happy. You know, and they, they they'd say, "Could we interview some other people who might know other sides of you, like your family or your coworkers?" and Sure, okay. And if everybody pretty much agreed, Shirley's a pretty happy person, they'd give an in-depth interview. Why are you so happy? You know? And they, over these three-year period, interviewed like 325 people, I think it was, and came down to nine choices that every one of them made, consciously or unconsciously. So you, you're you probably saying, well, what are they? <laughs> so in, in rather than getting... 30 notes. I'll just say them (laughs) quickly. And then I want to uh, just do a little bit with you. Okay. It starts, all of them start, not surprisingly, with intention. Which is what the Buddha said. Everything starts with intention. Inclining the mind a certain way. And they said that a lot of people don't even realize that happiness is what they want. Oh, I want to be successful. Oh, I want to, you know, have everything that I, I wish for and, and accomplish it. But really what they want is to be happy. Those things are just means to being happy. And when you put happiness, especially the true happiness, at the center of your life, then everything else falls into place. <clears throat> so it's the intention to be happy that they all had in common. And in fact, there's some incredible stories. A lot of these people were were coming from very difficult circumstances. They weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouth. They had to go through a lot of dukkha to see I want to be happy. Once you make that choice and set your intention in that direction, everything else follows. And that's what we're doing here in the Metta practice. Planting seeds of happiness What do you think we're doing? May I be happy? May I be happy? May you be happy? May you be peaceful? It's planting every one of those metaphrases, you are planting seeds that bear fruit in their own time. That's how it works. So the intention to be happy, then their second in the list is uh, what they call accountability, which means not looking outside for your happiness or your suffering. As Sylvia Borstein writes in her book, happiness is an inside job. That rather than looking out there for blame or hope, it's all about you have the power within you. Accountability, identification is one of, on their list. What does really bring you joy? centrality is make, is prioritizing it, putting it in the center of your life. Recasting is really learning to deal with dukkha. It's not just, oh, when the good times come. It's how you can process the difficult times. And so that's what we do a lot in Dharma practice, to open up to the suffering and recast it and transform it into compassion and understanding. Options is is the next, where you're not just stuck on one plan, but you're open to the fact that life changes. And if you listen carefully to, to the truth, you'll get a sense of where you need to go next, not being stuck on a fixed plan. Flexibility. Appreciation is huge. Gratitude. And also appreciation of the moment, the wonder of now. Giving, that is generosity, generous heart, which is what the Buddha taught first to lay people. If you really want to be happy, then know the joy of generosity, because there's the connection that we have with others, and it's the act of letting go, and to really be present for it. And giving is a huge one that all of these people knew. As, as Shanti Deva says, lifting above the poverty, to the wealth of giving to life. And then truthfulness, honesty, truthfulness with ourselves, with life, with others, seeing things as they truly are. So all of these are Dharma principles, really. And I want to talk particularly uh, about um, a couple Ooh. Okay, I won't. I'll just say a little. Hmm. Well, the one that I really want to uh, share with you is one that you've been developing, particularly with the benefactor. Um, and that is the quality of gratitude. It opens the heart. It shifts our whole demeanor from what's missing to what, how precious the blessings in life are. The Buddha has a beautiful discourse, the Discourse on Blessings. And He says, stay in touch with all the blessings in your life. One Tibetan teacher talks about devotion and the experience of gratitude to the lineage as having your satellite dish out. And and that's how I like to think of gratitude. When you're so open, you say, oh, thank you for all the blessings that you've given, for the way you've enriched my life. You are open to receiving more and more of the blessings. If you're stuck in saying, not fair, what's wrong? I got you know, ripped off by life. There's no room for you to take in the blessings. So gratitude opens us up to see what's all around. And you can change, you really can change. I'll just, since it's about time, I'll, I'll end with, with this. Too bad. Uh, (laughs) uh, This is uh, actually, before I end with that, this is from M.J. Ryan, who uh, is a wonderful uh, happiness writer and friend. She says, Gratitude is like a flashlight. It lights up what is already there. You don't necessarily have anything more or different, but suddenly you can actually see what is. And because you can see, you no longer take it for granted. And uh, I just want to share with you, if, in case you're somebody who's saying, well, that's that's all fine for somebody who's been able to, um, to cultivate that, but um, I think my neural pathways are entrenched, and uh, it might be a little bit hard to change. And I want to share with you a story to maybe motivate you to see that change is possible. And this is one that I share in, in the course uh, about my mom, who um, is is now ninety. She's going to be ninety one in August, and um, she is, uh, by her own admission, um, somebody who doesn't incline to seeing what's right in in the world. You know, although she knows she's you know, she has she's had a very blessed life she um, tends to see the glass half-empty or three-quarters empty. <laughs> and uh, and she's, she's dear. We have a wonderful relationship now. And I, I was with her This a, a, mm, almost two years ago, uh, visiting her down in L.A., and I had um, with me a, um, a journal, the Greater Good magazine, which is a fabulous uh, magazine, and the whole issue was about gratitude and all the, um, all the positive benefits from your, in your immune system and your well-being in gratitude. And I said, hey, mom, check this out. You know? And I, we were playing Scrabble and I was reading. We, we play a lot of Scrabble. She loves beating me, by the way. She's very good. And she, I was saying, "Here, there's this, and there's that, and there's that. You know, she, she said, wow, that's really impressive. I said, wouldn't it be great, you know, to practice gratitude? And she said, yeah, it would, but you know, I've been doing it another way for a long time. If I I said, if you could remember, she said, I know my life is blessed, but uh, it's just hard to see it that way. I said, if you could remember, would you would you? She said, Yeah, if I could. I said, Okay, let's play a game. I said, every time you complain or see something wrong I'll just remind you I'll say and and you say and my life is very blessed she said oh okay I'll go for it she was, she was ready to go after the research well I had a lot of opportunities <laughs> that next week you know, and you just would say And, you know, gee, it's so, it's so cool. She lives in Marina Del Rey, you know, it's, it's, you know, maybe 65 that day, you know. It's so cool. And, and my life is very blessed, you know. know, oh, I, I don't, we, we don't have enough in the refrigerator. And, oh yeah, and my life is very blessed. Well, we had a great week and it just became more and more, it was, it was fun. And she was getting into it too. And when I got home, I made particular uh, um, effort to call her those next few days a lot, you know, and a friend of hers kept it going as well down there. My sister who was away, she was out of town, uh, she came back a few weeks later and she said, what did you do to mom? (laughs) Um, And amazingly, it took hold and she kept up with it. that startled me. We kept up and kept up and kept up. And seven months later, she sent me a birthday card. And I'll just read you an excerpt from the card. And during that time, she started losing her vision to macular de- degeneration, which has kind of amazingly reversed because she has the right kind. But she was losing her vision, and it was not easy. And this is what she wrote in her card. 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that caused the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty, it's overflowing to be sure. And she has kept it up. It's amazing. She said, I said, Boy, mom, you're so positive. She said, I'm having so many positive thoughts, it's positively exhausting. (laughs) So if she can do it, you can. You can. It's just inclining the mind and planting those seeds and little by little, seeing all the goodness around you and inside of you. And the more you can see it inside of you, the more we all get to feel it around us. So um, I hope that uh, my mom is a, an inspiration and in that you see where this is heading. We're doing really good work here and not just for yourself, but everybody in your life and all beings. So let's sit for a moment. Feel all the goodness inside of you, if it's available. All the sincerity that you've been putting in these last few days. And all the people who support you and who you care about. And all the blessings in your life. We're all so blessed, no matter what's happening to us. Open to the goodness. Don't miss it. Allow it. Let it shine through you. for your attention, enjoy your evening.